Space fans, and welcome to another episode of the Supercluster podcast. I'm Jamie Carrero here in the socially distanced virtual Supercluster headquarters studio, and I'm joined by Robin C. Mangle and also David W. Brown is our guest for this episode, who has written a wonderful book, the title of which I will deliver to you now. It is called The Mission, or How a Disciple of Carl Sagan, an ex-motocross racer, a Texas Tea Party congressman, the world's worst typewriter saleswoman, California mountain people, and an anonymous NASA functionary went to war with Mars, survived an insurgency at Saturn, traded blows with Washington, and stole a ride on an Alabama moon rocket to send a space robot to Jupiter in search of the second Garden of Eden at the bottom of an alien ocean inside of an ice world called Europa. A true story by David W. Brown. And I'll toss it over to Robin to greet our guest and give a little bit more background. Now, Jamie, thank you for taking one for the team there and reading that title. I love that title, by the way. The title is incredible. And when I saw it on the bookshelves at Politics and Prose last weekend in Washington, D.C., it really stuck out. It really, I knew about the book, obviously, but to see it on a bookshelf and see such an exciting, thrilling story being put out there about space exploration is really, really great. David, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for writing this book. Thank you for having me. Now, David, I want to get into a little backstory here. Even before we went live with Supercluster, we were trying to figure out what the editorial voice would be, what kind of stories we would end up tackling here at Supercluster. One of the people I talked to was you. I think we had like a a really nice conversation on the phone. I was like, hey, Canaveral, you were telling me that you about your book coming up and how it's been this painstaking, really just heavy lift for you and an incredible process. You were sharing with me the depth of the story that is being told here. Now, with that title, let's break it down. The focus of the book is looking for extraterrestrial life on Europa. And why did this story really speak to you? And because the book is thrilling. Did you see that thrilling part of the story before you wrote it? When I first heard about the Europa mission, this was maybe seven or eight, well, it was about eight years ago. As a storyteller, you're always on the lookout for stories with high stakes and and interesting characters. In the case of the Europa mission, the stakes literally could not be higher. The search for non-Earth life in the solar system is probably the most consequential activity ongoing by scientists today. I mean, it affects philosophy, it would affect religion, it would affect biology, it would affect our understanding of our place, uh, not only in the solar system, but really in the in the entire galaxy. So the box marked stakes was was checked right away. Right, right. Absolutely. What I didn't expect were the people involved in the mission to be so compelling, to have such extraordinary backstories, to be so eloquent in conversation and generous with their time. So from the first day, from the first interview, I knew right away I had something pretty special here. And I've spent the last seven years in terror waiting for somebody to beat me to writing of this book. So I can now sleep easy. I, (laughs) I, uh, I was the first to the shelf, but there are going to be books written about this for decades, if not centuries. So I'm just pleased to plant my flag now while I have. Yeah. What's special about the book to me is that we're not even near the mission yet. We haven't launched the mission yet. The rocket doesn't exist in a fully capable way yet, but the book is 
it, it plays like a really exciting film. And I, I'm, I'll admit, I don't read that much. I'm a film movie guy. When I read David's book, I watched it at the same time in my head because it's just very exciting. And it, it's one of the coolest tales from the world of space exploration. Obviously, we live in this new commercial era. There's lots of things happening, lots of news happening. But to get the behind the scenes story of such an enormous mission, and like you said, the, what would learn from this mission could change almost every aspect of science. It could change a lot of aspects of society in general. You said like religion and biology and just, you know, just the way people think of themselves as humans would change if we found life on another planet or another moon, even in this very solar system. So, David, I don't want to give too much away from the book because we want people to buy it and read it. Before we get into more of the story, what's the quickest way for people to get a hold of a copy of the book right now? I usually tell people to, if, if they can, if they have a local bookstore, mm-hmm. go ahead and support your local, your local indie. They have, a, they have a pretty tough job, but they're also culture makers for our societies. That said, the easiest way is probably going to be something like Amazon or, or Barnes & Noble. I, I don't even mind. In fact, I encourage Call your local library, ask them to order it. Right. For me, the most important thing is just that people buy multiple copies of the books and give them to all of their friends. There you go. <laughs> now we're talking. Yes, that's you the should, plan. It's a good gift. I have a couple copies. I'm definitely going to give one to a friend, probably an aerospace student or someone. I really recommend the book to anyone who is entering the aerospace industry or entering NASA or doing an aerospace education. There's a problem, and we've talked about this, especially Jamie and I. There's a problem and a huge gap between what people are learning in school and what's actually happening in the industry. And that's not one individual or one institution's fault. It's just that by the time textbooks are printed or materials are produced for seventh grade, eighth grade, even high school, they're a bit outdated in what they're teaching. As we know, astronomy, space flight, everything related to space and space exploration evolves and changes every couple of years. The body of knowledge changes. Papers are written that negate the previous paper. So I encourage people to buy books like The Mission and really gives you a sense of what the industry and the space community is like right now. Yeah. And you can't get that in a textbook. And the breadth of the types of people that that are involved, I think, is really highlighted by this story. Uh, Sorry, David, what were you saying? No, I was just going to say that that's very kind of you and for both of you, actually. You raised a couple of interesting points. When I was writing this book, I wanted to make sure that I was writing a book about scientists and science for people who don't read books about scientists and science. The, right. the science in there is, is, is really rock solid. I spent a lot of years trying to get it right and working with you know, the world's foremost subject matter experts on this to make sure that the, the picture of Europa that they're getting, the picture of the solar system that they're getting in icy worlds and, and astrobiology, that all of that would be precise. But at the same time, I made sure to write it in such a way that the reader doesn't need to bring anything to this book. Like you don't need to know the difference between an asteroid and a black hole. And you should be able to pick this book up and read 500 pages without being confused for a moment if I did my right. job correctly. You mentioned the, the how different papers come out and invalidate the work that came before. And of course, that was a challenge with something as, as heavily studied right now as Europa because of the Europa Clipper mission that's, that's right. in development and that's going to launch. When I was writing this book, the book does not end with a rocket launch. And at first glance, that might seem like a strange way to end a book about a space mission. Right. But it was actually an enabler because 
the book itself is really about the journey to get there, to get to that point when you can launch a rocket. I remember I covered the New Horizons flyby of Pluto. I guess this was 2015. And when I got home, I told a friend about it and she said, well, who cares? Like, it's not even a planet anymore. Right. I, and, and the thing is, she was under the impression that, you know, the rocket had launched a week earlier. Like, they had just cobbled the mission together, launched it, right. and it happened. You know, there's, there's very little, I think, general understanding of how big the solar system is. But more importantly, <laughs> it was nine years. Yeah. Just right, right. Nine years between launch and that flyby we're talking about. And that's right. just that segment of the entire story of that mission. Exactly. Right. And there were decades of work that went into it. I mean, New Horizons, the, its origins were in the 1980s. So that was a real, you know, that was a, a motivating factor when I was writing this book. So people could really see how much incredible effort and how much tenacity is necessary and how much just hard science convincing not only NASA, but convincing Congress, convincing your colleagues in planetary science that these are the sorts of missions we need to fly. This is where we need to go. And this is why, you know, that was a driving force. Of course, there are many rocket launches in this book because it takes place over the span of about 20 years. Right. You, you got everything from, you know, Cassini. We go back to Galileo. We get New Horizons. We get all sorts of rocket launches. But the story ends at the very first. Uh, well, the, the story ends before the rocket launches. Let's not spoil yeah. the last chapter. Yeah, yeah, we won't spoil the last chapter. And I think what's great about this book, it doesn't end that you know conventional way. And I think that gives the book more life. And I think once, you know, there's all these milestones that will happen with Europa Clipper over the next decade, there's going to be a million reasons and a million points at which people can say, you know what, I need to go grab this book off the shelf and get context for the mission. So I think that it was a smart play <laughs> to not wait until launch. I was really gratified to hear, I'm starting to hear from people who are actually on the Europa Clipper mission or who, or who were part of the journey to get us from, uh, you know, 20 years ago, the first Europa orbiter concept all the way through to what, the multiple flyby concept that they have today. And even they who were part of this journey had no idea of the things going on across NASA, um, even across the lab. Nobody really knew what anybody else was thinking. And in and, and, and that regard, I think it, it's probably a useful read for anyone who's in, who's interested in how these missions work, but also if you are a prospective member of one of these missions, it, it might be useful to see what headquarters is thinking when you're thinking, ah, they hate us up there. And in fact, they mm. might not. They might be doing their very best or vice versa. Yeah. And it's exciting to think that someone could be part of a mission that is so vast, both in its time span and also in the number of stakeholders and people who influence how it goes, that you could be extremely close to it and still not see the entire forest for the trees, so to speak, not really know the full picture of what you're involved in. That's pretty exciting. One thing I wanted to ask is that to fill in a little bit more about David W. Brown for our audience, this is a, a man who has been to the Antarctic, who runs long distances, who is a former army paratrooper and a veteran of Afghanistan. So uh, the reason I mention these things is you are clearly a person who's used to in-person experiences, to exploration being something that you see with your own eyes and you breathe the air and really know what it's like. So I wonder if you want to talk a little bit about what it's like to tell a story that is just about as distant from that as you can get. That part was one of the interesting challenges of the book. Obviously, nobody's ever set foot on Europa. So it took countless interviews with just innumerable people to get the best ideas based on scientific research that's been conducted based on observations from various spacecraft. What would it be like to stand on Europa? 
obviously a human being would die instantly of cancer there, but what would it look like if you could gaze at the horizon? And I was able to, you know, they painted a very evocative story and it's a very suggestive place. And it's, you know, it's a post-apocalyptic Antarctica, right? Right. So it, it, and of course, when you're standing on this moon, you're looking up and you're seeing Jupiter in the night sky, 27 times larger than the moon in our own sky. So it would just dominate the night sky. It must be terrifying. And and wow. the, the cohort Galilean moons spinning around or circling, looking as menacing and as far from what our moon looks like as conceivable with the human imagination. Yeah, it'd be like the sky is falling a little bit all the time. It, you would, I, I imagine you would be in a constant state of terror from the moment you landed there till the moment you left. It, 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 <laughs> the human, the human imagination just did not evolve to envision a world like Europa and and envision such a sky. So I, I, my hats off to the brave astronauts two hundred years from now who are stomping around up there trying to mine, trying to mine Europa for water. Yeah, the things that I was able to to actually sort of put my eyes on and 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 sort of be at the ground level for are things that might seem more prosaic, like going to a jet propulsion laboratory. It's a beautiful office space, basically. But there are some cool things like the high bay where they're building the spacecraft and the Mars yard where they test out the rovers and things like that. And applied physics laboratory and, you know, the, the, the entire sort of assembly line of rockets for the space launch system rocket, right? So they're building the main, the main tank out of Michu in New Orleans. They're building that they have the rocket engines at Stennis in Mississippi and the test sands there. They're running the thing out of Marshall. They're launching rockets from Cape Canaveral. So it's that lovely, that lovely conveyor belt westerly. Yeah. And the whole nation gets a little bit of play here with missions like this. You have oh, things yeah. happening at, in, in, in New Orleans, uh, JPL, uh, Kennedy Space Center. That's where the mission will launch from. Before we get into SLS, <laughs> um, I wanted to talk about John Culberson. So a few years back, I was a reporter on the beat. I think it was five years ago. I was at Kennedy Space Center. And uh, I met with Bill Nye, who at the time just wanted to talk about Europa for some reason. He was hanging out at Kennedy and he's like, you know, Europa is the place we're going to find some sort of biological life. So I interviewed him. I published an article in the New York Observer. And I think a couple of days later, I got a phone call from an aide to a congressman, member of the U.S. representatives. His name is John Culberson. He's from Texas. I didn't really know about him. I wasn't really doing politics. They said, hey, we would like to republish your article on this congressman's website, his like actual congressional website. And I'm like, why? <laughs> you know, and I'm like, why? Why does John Culberson care about this mission? And it's I think that is the example of how amazing the implications are behind the Europa Clipper mission. Culberson wanted to, you know, wants to send Clipper there. To see a congressman get excited about a space mission is what was amazing to me. And it really made me dig deep into Europa Clipper. And it just seems like there's a wide consensus that this mission will be important and it's important that we do it. And along with the consensus that we are likely to find something on Europa. To add a tiny bit of context there, Culberson is, you know, without getting into any politics here, is someone who rejects the scientific consensus on climate change. He's not someone right. who believes the scientists on that. But at the same time, he's one of the he was one of the you know, he lost his seat, but was, was one of the strongest advocates 
for the Europa mission. So it has a way of drawing in people that may not be the most uh, scientifically minded, to put right. it lightly. So David, my question to you is, and I know your book gets into this, but how did politics and some of these political figures play into this mission getting greenlit? I think it's fair to say that without, without John Culberson literally forcing the issue by writing the Europa mission into the federal budget multiple right. times, the mission would probably eventually get approved, but it wouldn't be approved yet. I think we would still be talking about, should we go to Europa or should we go to the ice giants? Or what, would the, what will the next decadal survey, which is the sort of the consensus community document written by planetary scientists that decide where NASA next explores, I think we would still be discussing, should we go to Europa rather than Europa Clipper is going to be launching in 2025. So. Culberson deserves an enormous amount of credit for, right. for making this thing happen. He was an interesting guy to, to interview uh -huh. and to get to know like on a personal level. And I, I, I've shared this with other people before. The first time that, that I interviewed him, I had I'd driven up to Houston. I went to his office and it was, we were going to meet at the end of the day after his workday had ended. So I, I think it was like 6 PM and there had been a parade of people that sort of going into, into his conference room to meet with him and his staff to talk about whatever issues were pressing to them, whether it was things regarding Houston, whether it was national politics, whether it was how we're going to run various science agencies and so on and so forth. It was just a, just a nonstop group of people with totally different agendas and requests. Of course. So when I went into the conference room after it was all over, they called me in and I went in there and he was tired. The man, he looked exhausted. And I asked the first question, first two or three questions actually. And I got very standard politician answers, just very, very guarded, very shielded. Are we down um, the middle? Oh, of course. Nobody yeah. was going to be offended by anything that he said. Right. And then after a few minutes, I just mentioned Europa for the first time. I kind of brought it in because I usually like to start out with just general questions. Tell me about yourself. Where'd you come from? Those sorts of things. The minute I mentioned Europa, he started talking and he was giving a guarded answer about NASA, blah, blah, blah. We're going to do this. We want to do that. And then he just, there was like a switch went off and he turned into like a space fan, just someone who knows what's going on and who likes this stuff rather than a politician. And at that point, it was like interviewing a little boy. That's wonderful, and, actually. And from then on, for the next, you know, four or five interviews that we did, and we hours and hours of interviews, we had sort of a, a connection. We had a, an understanding with each other. We, we knew who each other or what each other wanted. And, and in this case, we both loved space. We both loved these sorts of things. He's a guy who knew his stuff. Like in terms of members of Congress knowing about how NASA works, knowing how planetary science works, he was definitely the guy that you wanted on your team. And it was a real loss, I think, when he lost his, his house seat. He was certainly a man of contradictions. Like you said, he certainly was very public in questioning the consensus on climate change and things like that. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I'll give him credit, when the Trump administration came in, their first budget was going to slash Earth science funding. And Culberson, who had lost re-election at that point, quietly restored all of that money to earth science that had been cut and he didn't need to do that so i'm not sure how much of that is from the heart how much of that is to play to the his political base his constituents yeah, yeah. right yeah maybe uh, maybe i'm not giving him enough credit in the way i was contextualizing that this is all uh, no, pretty positive I, I mean, stuff well it's an important thing to make because i feel like 
as a member of Congress, it should be your job to educate your constituents in a certain to a certain extent on why this stuff matters. Yeah, and, and have some and, loyalty to the scientific truth. We we would hope, but exactly. I know life so, is a little more complicated than that, unfortunately. Right. So, yeah. So he was definitely an interesting guy, but yeah, politics is everything in NASA, isn't it? Yeah, and let's use that as a segue to get into some of this ugly stuff. Now, we published an excerpt from the mission uh, last week in Supercluster. And it definitely pissed some people off. <laughs> and uh, we got some messages. It's uh, a segment from a chapter in the book that goes into some of the deal making that happened in the early Obama administration as they were figuring out what their spice policy was going to look like. Now, Dave, you want to just like give us, you know, obviously there's a lot of branches that we can go off to here, but can you give us the basically what? we wrote about in super or the excerpt we published in Supercluster, And a few months ago, you also wrote a piece about the space launch system as it relates to Clipper. What do people need to know now about, you know, we're, we're entering a new administration, a new NASA administrator has not been picked yet. We're not really getting a super clear idea of what the space policy will look like under Biden, but we do know what it looks like under Obama and how did Clipper you know, evolve out of that drama? To answer your first question, I think I, I'm very interested to see what the next NASA administrator has to say about, about SLS. If you approach SLS as a heavy lift rocket, I think it's pretty clear it might get one launch. Might. And yeah. well, I, I guess it's fair to say it will get one launch and it'll be more almost ceremonial, um, a sort of passing of the torch. NASA is no longer in the rocket business. Here's our last one. It's a beautiful. Right. It's a it's a beautiful example of what we can achieve. And now we're going to hand it off to SpaceX and everyone will just kind of exit the stage quietly. Mm-hmm. But but it's I don't see it being a, a an active part of of space exploration going forward unless you approach SLS as a jobs program. If you're just like, we want to keep the people of Huntsville gainfully employed. We want to keep the defense industrial base sharp. Let them learn how to build rocket engines and, and how to launch things like intercontinental ballistic missiles into space. From that point of view, SLS is a fabulous success. And the worst thing that could possibly happen to it is it launching. It should just stay in development forever and everyone's gainfully employed. It just depends on it, – it's just a question of how, how <laughs> you approach the space program. As it relates to Europa Clipper – there's a lovely synergy there. That's another aspect of, of this story that I did not anticipate when I began writing this book. Clipper does not have a natural constituency or did not have a natural constituency sort of on the ninth floor of NASA headquarters. The administrator, Charlie Bolden, he was a beloved figure at NASA, but he wasn't a science guy. He was an astronaut. And he was a former Marine. And that's what he was good at. And that's what he understood. He loved SLS. And the Europa Clipper mission because they shared personnel over the years, there was, a, there was a nice interchange with the people in Huntsville developing this rocket. And SLS would go on to be the first rocket that was directly influenced by a science mission, which is not something I, I knew about in advance, but it, it works out lovely in, in the book. But because of this, when they went to NASA headquarters and said, look, Congress is behind us, the scientific community is behind us. The science is behind us. They had just discovered plumes on Europa, which means rather than having to figure out how to get to that ocean, the ocean was coming to them. Then they said, oh, and by the way, this rocket that you love, Mr. Administrator, 
it's going to launch this thing. And right away, NASA was like, well, this is perfect. Everybody wins because it's not like we were going to Mars on SLS. That's still 20 years away. Or right. at the time, it certainly felt that way. And I, I if if not for SpaceX, I, I'm sure it will be 20 years away yet. So it, it gave SLS something to do and it gave Europa Clipper a way to get to Jupiter in two and a half years rather than six or seven. Now, of course, Europa Clipper is almost certainly going to launch on a Falcon Heavy and it'll have a six-year cruise phase, but that's actually pretty good because they don't have to fly by Venus and thus they don't have to have thermal protection for that sort of mission. So uh, that's a long-winded answer of saying how the two are connected. As it relates to how, when the Obama administration came in, how did SLS come to be? Um, the short version is the policy at NASA at the time was this massive sort of Apollo on steroids program called Constellation. And the idea was to go to the moon and then go to Mars to build rockets to launch the International Space Station, to build rockets to launch or heavy lift rockets to, to send cargo and humans to other bodies in deep space, whether it's the moon or Mars or, or wherever. And the problem was it just that the constellation just wasn't gelling. It just wasn't it wasn't working. And they convened a, pro, a commission called the Augustine Commission, named after uh, the guy who was running it, the former CEO of Boeing, I believe. And there were, I don't know, there were something like five or six recommendations for human spaceflight going forward. And every single one of them said, but first we have to cancel Constellation. It was just, it, it had become an impediment or, or a sort of bureaucratic nightmare rather than being an enabler. And so that's what they wanted to do. They were going to cancel Constellation. They were going to get, get out of the heavy lift business, get out of the rocket business and give that to the private sector. And there was pushback on that. And ultimately, the Obama administration caved on heavy lift because they had other priorities they wanted to bring to the forefront. And the president wasn't going to waste political capital on, on a rocket like that. Nobody ever won re-election by by supporting space. Like it's just, it's just not the case. <laughs> yeah. In terms of sunk costs, that Constellation program at the time of this debate had already been going on for nine years. So you can imagine how many tentacles it had reached out into all different, you know, providers and communities and people. So it's understanding, uh, you know, it's understandable that there was some pushback on it, but at some point you have to just walk away. If you want to see the Constellation program live on, just watch The Martian because they ran with that in that film. <laughs> I think it's like the, it was the Aries rocket, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. 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 When I first started covering Kennedy, it was, that was the end of the Constellation program. And I remember there being a lot of blame being thrown around. Oh, Obama canceled Mars. Obama canceled this, canceled that. But when you think about the time period and the time span and all the events that led to that happening, and this goes for all different kinds of missions, I think blame can be spread around multiple administrations. Of course. If we, if we needed to. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the Obama administration deserves credit because they, they right. asked by, by canceling the Constellation program, they streamlined it. Mm -hmm. They realized... And I've heard from, you know, former heads of the Mars exploration. I've heard from the guy who designed the, the astronaut spacesuit that was used by uh, the shuttle crew. And they all said the same thing. The lessons that you learn on the moon do not apply to Mars. You'll have to relearn every one of those lessons on Mars. And if you've got to relearn them anyway, and right. the goal is Mars, why are we wasting time going to the moon? Let's save tens of billions of dollars and just invested in the goal. Yeah. And, uh, and literally Obama, a different world. Right, right. exactly. And, and, and the Obama administration deserves credit for just putting it out there like that for, for sort of bucking conventional wisdom. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I see the Trump administration, the return to the moon 
I personally see it as regression. I see it as just slowing things down. Yeah. Feels like somebody wants a feather in their cap for something right. they know it, can be achieved because we did it already. You know, it right. seems very, I feel like there's a lot of nationalism behind it. A lot of, Hey, look, China's doing this. Hey, look, Russia's doing this. And that, that seems to be like the driving factor when we see the moon being used as a talking point. It's always like national security or, you know, something not very positive is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I think you're exactly correct. And I think the re- rebuttal to that should be good job, guys. Right. <laughs> Look for the stuff that we left there in the 60s. Like, right. Yeah, exactly. Please take a photo of our lander that is now a historical monument so we can put it in the Smithsonian. Right. Um, exactly. But now, yeah. David, you wrote a, it was in the Wall Street Journal a couple of weeks ago. It was an op-ed written by David saying, hey, basically what we just said, why are we kind of wasting our time putting all this energy into the moon when it's clear that Mars is the next destination for us? And I'm, you know, not to bring in SpaceX into this, but they are the space flight leaders right now. And they're the reason why they've captured the hearts and minds of the public. And the reason they're you know, people are excited to work with them and work for them and excited to go to work every day because they have this ultimate goal. And it seems like everything they do, even tonight's, we're, we're recording this podcast on Wednesday, February 3rd. And before the show, we talked about, well, they might launch two rockets tonight in a span of four hours from Cape Canaveral. All that these little things. historic achievement, by the way. It is a historic achievement if, it's, if it happens. But it will happen one day if it doesn't tonight. Yep. But that's just an example of, SpaceX, you know, iteration process and, you know, pushing that build to get a fully reusable spacecraft. But all that aside, the ultimate goal is to land human boots on Mars. And I feel like that really, you know, concise, really, it's a specific thing that they're chasing. And when you look at NASA, you don't get that potency in the vision anymore. You don't get that like you, when, when you think of NASA, you know, 30 or 40 years ago, everyone had the same image flag on the moon, people on the moon, yeah. you know, Apollo 13 even. And it even gave shuttle. momentum. It, it gave, gave momentum. Like, and, every week you could see a new update. They're testing right. this. They're building that. Right. The next one of these. And the closest right. analog, having not been alive during that era personally, that I feel is what SpaceX is doing now, Robin, as you're outlining. They right. have this pace of achieving the next thing or even just trying to. That gives you confidence that that far off vision of Mars, as crazy as it sounds, is something that they're treating as a reality. Right. And and it's starting to really take shape. So, David, my question to you is, can you boil down your argument? Like, why should we go straight to Mars? And why is that the next thing for us? The simple answer to that question is because we can. When we consider the various objectives that could be in space for for astronauts. For a while there, we were going to go to an asteroid, we were going to go to the moon. And of course, Mars has always been the goal. One thing that I I write about in the mission is Mars was the goal before the moon was the goal. That was always NASA's, you know, reason for being. And that goes back to like Werner von Braun and and sort of that group that was part of the early prenatal stages of what would become NASA. And there's also that subtle piece of the story that I personally have always felt, and I think a lot of people share, that yes, the moon is interesting, 
but Mars is another planet. And we always like to say that we went to another world when we went to the moon. And I believe that in a, in a sort of poetic way, but Mars is another planet. You know, yeah. there's something about that that is so much more of a, of a leap in our collective imagination. The moon is still Earth's system. We call that Earth system in, in the future, I'm sure. Yeah, good point. Good point. We have not left the orbit of Earth's the Earth. We're in like a child of the orbit of the Earth. But when we go to Mars, it's a whole new ballgame. And, you know, you know, whether or not scientifically that distinction is super significant, I think it really is in people's minds. So, David, talking about Mars, we're all, you know, we're planning for the Mars Perseverance landing, which is happening in a couple of weeks. And, David, you'll be heading over to JPL. Can you give us a tease of what you'll be expecting? I know you've worked um, landings before. So what's that going to be like? Gosh, it's going to be terrifying, isn't it? The um... <laughs> Always, always. <laughs> Landing on any planet, especially Mars, is terrifying. I just want to point out that the last couple of years... We've had failures landing on the moon. <laughs> so right. um, looking at Mars. Yes. And to JPL's I'll, credit, though, Curiosity yeah. was the size of a Mini Cooper, and they landed yeah. that like they knew how to do it. I mean, right. I'm continuously impressed. So all the fingers and toes crossed. JPL is the Hogwarts of NASA. That's where all the magic happens. <laughs> That's um, true. And I bet they have a, really a, train, really a train station that I bet they can run through a wall and, and end up there. Like, I mean, it's amazing. I remember touring that place and being so charmed at the tiny details of its character. Like the fact that I walked by a telephone pole and someone had scrawled in pencil an equation that clearly they had to solve right in that moment. And any writing surface was the right one. And I, you know, and it was like 12th level calculus that I can't pretend to understand, but I'm sure that it was an important calculation. There's something about that place, man. It's wonderful. Yeah. So David, we're obviously, this will, will be a landing that will happen during the pandemic. I remember Insight, it was a couple of years ago. It feels like 10 years ago because we're in a different world now, but we supercluster existed. We, we had just opened our doors. I think Jamie, when insight was landing, I went out to times square. Oh yeah. 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 I'd have to look brought, it up, but that was a few yeah. months in. Yeah. Right. And Back NASA when the world operated right normally. And, um, NASA broadcasted it on a giant screen, the NASDAQ screen in times square. It was raining and stuff, but people were out there and it was awesome. And just, you know, we're not going to have that kind of fanfare out in the streets uh, this time around. But I think that no matter what, it's going to be extremely exciting. And there are going to be a few reporters at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory to capture that mood and, and, and everything that's going on. And uh, David will be one of them. David, what's? I know we're all excited for the landing itself, but that set, is it the seven minutes of terror? Is that going to be the same amount of time for this landing? It will be the same amount of time. It's in terms of the landing system that it's using. It's it's a it's an updated version of the lander that put Curiosity down. It still has to have those multiple stages: the parachutes and the retro yeah. rockets and the sky crane and the lowering of the robot onto the surface and then flying away without damaging the sensitive scientific equipment on it. But they've they've enhanced sort of the, the pathfinding capabilities of the lander in order to touch down in a in a more precise region of Mars. But it's one of those cases where the computer's doing all the work. Like right. at the Mission Operations Center, they're not piloting the thing onto the Martian surface. The computer's doing everything and, and by the time it lands, by the time the signal returns to Earth, either it'll be dead or alive. Um, but there is that that gap in terms of the communications time 
to to reach Mars and, and for that signal to come back. Yeah. So, but what's kind of cool about all this is this land as this landing technology evolves. I mean, this is the sort of thing that has applications obviously for human space flight, but also for robotic space flight to other worlds. And the Europa lander uses technology directly derived from, from the Mars landers. So it's, you know, this, the work that goes into this is, is something broad. And we talked earlier about, you know, why should we go to Mars? Why should we seed China or, or seed the moon to China, for example? Mm-hmm. Well, the answer is because we haven't landed anything on the moon in, since Apollo 17, which is astonishing to me. Yeah. But, 72, we're, I think. 73. Yeah, 1972. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. 72. But we're really good at landing things on Mars. We have an unbroken chain of successes going back to maybe the Phoenix or, or was it Phoenix yeah. or Spirit, I, and, Spirit and Opportunity? And knock wood loudly as you say that. Right. It's like nine <laughs> in a row if this one lands successfully. Um, and even Apollo can't claim that. So yeah. why should we go to Mars? Because not only can we, but we're the only ones who can. And my feeling we've clearly is proven we've clearly proven that with r- robotics we can make it so the next yeah. natural step is to send a human right and to use yeah. a mount everest metaphor because it's there because exactly. it's next why do we I climb a, the next mountain i have a deep feeling if i if i had to gaze into my crystal ball what i would see is spacex is just going to force the issue like at some mm-hmm. point they're going to say we're ready to launch this thing to mars they're going to launch, they're going to have successful landings with Starship. And then they're going to say, well, we're now we're going to do people. And when that happens, I have a feeling that NASA is just going to basically buy the rights to that launch. They're just going to oh, yeah. buy their way onto the oh, space. Oh, yeah. The, the scientific motivation will be so strong to just take the opportunity. The reality of SpaceX going to Mars, what that will actually evolve to is a commercial contract just like it exists today. We'll see a lunar variant commercial contract. We'll see a Mars variant contract because let's face the reality, SpaceX does not currently have the ability to train Mars astronauts or even lunar astronauts. So the way that will evolve one day will likely be JAXA, Roscosmos, your ESA, NASA astronauts going on that mission, which would be amazing. That That's the way it should be. There should be you know, four or five groups of international astronauts trained by their agencies flying on space on Starship. I really feel like that's how it will evolve. Like just like the first SpaceX commercial flight with humans was for two NASA astronauts and then three NASA astronauts and a JAXA astronaut. Yeah. I think that's the way it'll evolve. I think that's just natural. And let's face it, NASA and those other agencies will be the only people with money to pay for it. And the significance yes. of these robotic launches really can't be overstated in terms of the eventual human launch. Because, you know, I'm sure a lot of our listeners are familiar with the seven minutes of terror. But to, to explain it just very, very briefly, the problem is that when you fly very long distances in space, you're accelerating to these extraordinary, unimaginable speeds. And then when it's time to land, you have to slow down. In the case of returning to Earth, a lot of that slowing down is done by passing through the atmosphere and you get all this friction and you heat up and slow down. But Mars does not have the same atmosphere. So it's a process of first using a parachute and and David or Robin, correct me if I'm getting this out of order, first using a parachute then using a propulsion system to essentially fire a rocket to slow yourself down. And then they're dangling the lander on a wire. Uh, That's the sky crane maneuver to further slow its descent and then get it going down. And then that 
you know, top part needs to fly away. And then I think you have a final propulsive landing at the end. But in any case, these stages, whether or not we use the same particular stages in that order of slowing down, that is the type of solution that's applicable across many landings on many planets. So whether it's a giant car-sized robot or a crew of humans, solving these problems is really going to help us get to Mars and, and elsewhere. I think the speed is like it's slowing down from 120 meters per second to gently touching down, setting this thing down on the surface yeah, of Mars. So more than a football insane. field every second right. to gently placing your teacup on, on the table. <laughs> Amazing. And just for some context, we've done a lot of writing about perseverance. I almost said Mars 2020, Mars <laughs> perseverance. But one of the big goals with this mission is to potentially find signs of past life on Mars, which is obviously another mission alongside Clipper, where we are looking for signs of life anywhere in the solar system. And I think perseverance is also supposed to um, build a foundation for a sample return uh, eventually. And on this mission is the first helicopter, quote unquote, to fly over the surface of Mars, which will be really exciting. Incidentally, that's another Culberson initiative. He's the one yeah, who yeah. pushed the funding. Wow. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, super yeah. high RPMs, by the way, for everybody, because as I mentioned before, since the atmosphere is so thin, right. you have to kind of bite into that atmosphere with your helicopter blades, which are kind of like spinning airplane wings. You know, you can imagine if the atmosphere is thin, you got to send your, your airplane a lot faster. So by the same token, you got to spin your rotor a lot faster on your helicopter. Right. So David, to wrap this up, obviously we really encourage everyone listening to go out and grab a copy of the mission. We're going to put David on the spot here and ask him if it, maybe it's too early. Are you working on another book? Are you thinking of another book? Is it too soon to ask? Are you too exhausted? Oh, well, fortunately and unfortunately, I am working on another book. <laughs> Before the edits were even finished with this one, I, I signed the deal for another one. Oh, um, good for us, not good for your sleep schedule. Right. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, I'm really tired, man. It's been a, it's been a lot of years since I've had a day off. That book is about Antarctica and rapid sea level rise. So I'm gonna Lovely. That's I'm gonna tackle climate change, and th yeah. that's one reason why I was in Antarctica in, in 2019. That book is unexpectedly an outgrowth of this book. I'll spare the listener the, the we'll details. We'll have you back on the podcast to talk about that. <laughs> for sure. Yeah, I mean, Antarctica is yeah. a great analog for space travel, by the way. So, it you is. know, we're definitely interested in talking about that story. Aside just from personal interest, it's, it's definitely related. Well, the, the ex-motocross racer listed in the title of the book is on the Europa Clipper mission. And the reason he's on the Europa Clipper mission is because he's an expert at cryospheres. He's an expert at studying Antarctica because if you oh, want wow. to learn how to study the ice on another world, you need to know, you need people who know how to study the ice on this one. So that's how I ended up from this book to the next book. So, wow. No, that's, that's cool. I, I'm definitely interested in that. I mean, personally, Antarctica is one of my dream travel locations. My, uh, kind of side hobby is is wildlife photography and exploration. So I'd really like to get to an extreme environment, maybe see some penguins. It was great for like a week. And then I was ready. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing is that I really, you have to stay there a long time, right? You can't right. just drop in. So it's, yeah, it's a whole plan. But no, I'm really looking forward to that. I mean, Antarctica, people think it's super remote, but there is like, there's like a Chilean military base where they all got coronavirus. 
<laughs> I was wow. like, I was shocked to find that out. I was like, wow, there's peop- enough people there Dude, for there I, to be I an mean, outbreak. <laughs> no, you know, no offense, everybody, but like credit to coronavirus. My God. <laughs> like, <laughs> so, David, my last question to you. We are entering this age where people like the three of us could potentially have an opportunity to go to orbit, to go to the ISS, you know, maybe even further one day. Obviously, a reporter who's been in been in the shit, I'd like to say. Um, you've you've been out there, you've experienced things, you've been to some treacherous terrain. If someone came to you and said, David, do you want to fly on Dragon to orbit or to the space station? What's your answer? Absolutely. When do yeah. we leave? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we all right. All right. We need I, to get I David. I yeah. usually push it a little further. What about a, a one-way Mars trip? Would you would you spend the rest of your life on Mars if that was uh, offered to you? That's a good question. So I'm going to steal Elon Musk's answer, right? I, I'd like to die on Mars, but but not no, on no, impact. impact. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> great point. Great point. Yeah, that. there's a lot of places I'd like to go in space, but not first. Yeah, not first, <laughs> but not last either. That would suck too. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> David, it's been a really great pleasure having you on the podcast and having you as a contributor. Supercluster is an honor. We love reading your stuff. Don't only read David's stuff in Supercluster. Read it in the New Yorker. Read it in the Wall Street Journal. Read it wherever he's publishing. Your writing is essential. You're saying things that people are afraid to say. You're giving an insight that most people are afraid to give. So we thank you for that. Three years ago, like I want to bring this back to my intro. Three years ago, I, I called you on the phone and we chatted about your book, chatted about Supercluster. I'm grateful for that conversation too, because you really set my mind in a right direction. And I think just your writing is incredible. It fits with our voice. And because of your voice, Supercluster is able to have that kind of high quality writing too and storytelling. So uh, we thank you, David. And um, we're going to keep bugging you until you publish another book. I, I appreciate that. And I appreciate the opportunity to write for Supercluster. It's um, it's probably, to me anyway, it's the most exciting voice in, in, in space right now. It has such a bright and, and exuberant future ahead of it. I, I, I'm, it's, it's just a pleasure to be a part of it. You know what? Let's make Thank a dream you. goal. David goes to space and covers it for Supercluster one day, hopefully. Excellent. Let's put, that, hope, let's put that in the universe. I hope to be taking photos of him from across the capital. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going go to go to SpaceX and be like, all right, SpaceX, listen, yes. we're going to need a discount here. Can we, very, uh, can we get that in my contract? That would be great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's well, the rider. We gotta must, get Elon at like three in the morning when he's feeling generous and a little loosey. <laughs> or would you be like, Elon, come on, sign this contract really quick? That, that reminds me of my favorite <laughs> response about the moon landing conspiracy. Is like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Kubrick shot the moon landing thing totally. He faked it, but he just insisted that they film on location. <laughs> <laughs> Kubrick would do something like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah. He, he's the father of the space program. All right, David, thank you so much and. Just to remind everyone, the mission is available now for order. It's on Amazon. It's on Barnes and Noble. But please check out your local um, bookstore. We, you know, that that's part of the culture. We we love bookstores. We love writing, and we want to make sure that those folks are supported as well. And David, thank you for bringing that up. And to our listeners, if you haven't read David's articles in Supercluster, please check those out. They're both about the space launch system aspect of the Europa Clipper mission and the uh, politics that went into uh, some of that decision-making, circling around de- former Deputy Director of NASA, Lori Garver, who we've had on the podcast before. She's a great person. Yes, thank you again, David Brown, and for all of our listeners. As always, check out more great space stories at supercluster.com. Make sure to read David W. Brown's book, The Mission, or 
how a disciple of Carl Sagan, an ex-motocross racer, a Texas Tea Party congressman, the world's worst typewriter salesman, California mountain people, and an anonymous NASA functionary went to war with Mars, survived an insurgency at Saturn, traded blows with Washington, and stole a ride on an Alabama moon rocket to send a space robot to Jupiter in search of the second Garden of Eden at the bottom of an alien ocean inside of a world called Europa, a true story. And as always, remember, space is for everyone. <laughs>